So let's go on a journey. So I, I work on the outer edge of this radar. This is where risk happens. This is where innovation happens. This is where all the exciting things happen that we talk about at the business seminars. And you have another one, I think, at the end of January. Uh, and I'm so pleased to have that connectivity here. Um, and you know what? I learned a very important lesson early on. Before I got involved in corporate lecturing, I learned something. Because my job was cancer. I, I worked as a hospice doctor looking after people who were dying. And I learned that life is really short. And that life is too short to waste a single day doing things that you don't believe in. Put up your hands if you think that's true. <laughs> you know, uh, I, had, I, had a, I had four and a half thousand people in Las Vegas. All of them were event organizers from all over the world. They were all busy organizing events. And I showed that slide and they shouted and they chatted clapped and they cheered and said, yeah, 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 yeah. Life is too short to sell products that are crap, forgive my language. Isn't that right? Life's too short to work for a company whose values you think are dishonest. Isn't that right? I don't care who you are or what you are or what's brought you here tonight, but I know that this is true. It's an almost universal perspective because I've tested it with hundreds of thousands of executives in every nation of the world. I think we all agree, life's too short to waste time doing things that are nonsense. Life is short. Every day really, really matters. And when you know that, I think it changes how you think about the future. Because the future is not just, oh, well, it's another day, it's tomorrow. No, 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 no. Today is a special day. It will never come again. Tomorrow is only one day. I can only live it once. So let's make it a good day, right? Okay. So uh, uh, this is a, it's, it's, about, it's about release. It's about finding why we're here. It's about discovering your destiny. It's about making a difference. It's about doing something extraordinary. Are you with me on that? That's what the future's about. You see, you can think, my job is a futurist. I'm supposed to predict trends. And I, I've been doing it for 20, 25 years, and I'm still in business. So I guess that makes me a futurist. But the point is this. The future is what you make it. It's not just getting ready for a big trend. We're going to look at some trends. But that's not what's important. What's really important is what decisions are you going to make that's going to change your future tomorrow. And I want to talk at one, one other thing I learned is that it's easy to be blind. I work with many big companies and it's easy to be blind. Google is blind. RBS is blind. Blind is bad. Uh, Credit Suisse is blind. The BBC is blind. Uh, why? Because we're all blind. We're all blind because we, when you spend a lot of time with one group in one country, in one nation, you become blind. And when you spend too much time with other bankers, you, 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 you become blind to things outside of banking. When you become too much time with Google programmers, you become blind to normal life outside of geek territory. Okay? It's really important. And I'll show you some examples of how easy it is to become blind because I believe there's blindness in us here tonight. And my job is to open our eyes a little bit so that you can see things in a different way. So here's an example. I'm sure you've all had the experience. You go to a really nice restaurant and you try to catch the waiter's attention. Great wine, great food, fantastic evening, but can you catch the waiter's attention? Hello, put up your hands if you've had that problem. Now, how much does it cost to use your eyes if you're a waiter? I used to work as a waiter in a restaurant when I was a student at Cambridge, actually, and I would be working my way around the tables. I got eyes in the back of my head. Yeah, and every time I smile, I make money. Mm, coffee, mm, sweet, mm, champagne, yes, ah, ah. Every time I'm doing that, and I've got, I, I, it doesn't matter whether I'm 
I go into a restaurant and I find, why is it that most waiters are looking for cockroaches on the floor? <laughs> it costs nothing to use your eyes. How long does it take to train a waiter to use their eyes? Two minutes. How long to realise that every time they smile at you and they use their eyes, they make money? One hour. How long for the restaurant to discover that they're making a 25% extra profit every night because it always comes from the extra glass of wine, the extra cup of coffee, the extra sweet that otherwise you are too late for and you go out. I'm just saying small things make a huge difference and restaurant owners can be blind. Here's another example of in restaurants. So I go, to, uh, uh, I go to a restaurant in Singapore with my wife. It's so dark in there that we need a torch to read the menu. What? I mean, what is that? Why? I'll tell you why. Because the people who designed the menu were 19-year-olds who don't need reading glasses. I need reading glasses and a torch to read the menu. I went to a, a hotel the other day, and uh, I was a bit jet-lagged. I got up in the morning. I was staggered into the shower. I wish I hadn't. I staggered into the shower. I started to have a shower and discovered I'd covered myself from head to toe with hair conditioner. How did that happen? I'll tell you why. Because the people who decided to design these things printed the text on this so small that there was no chance, that, like, impossible for me to read it without my glasses. But since when did you go into a shower with your glasses on? <laughs> so blindness, it's really easy for people to be blind in your own areas. And we can be very blind about really important issues in our own lives and our own futures. So let me take you on a journey, the truth about the future. So yes, it's true, for instance, that ele electronic cars are going to come and all of us will be driving them and one of the greatest buyers of them will probably be Uber, driving them around London. That is true. It is also not true that we'll all have 3D TVs. Why is that? You can't buy them anymore. Every manufacturer of 3D TVs in the entire world has stopped making them. It's also true that you're not all going to buy 3D printers. Anybody got one at home? I've got a 3D printer at home to print toys for Christmas. Very boring. Don't even try it. Okay? There's a lot of technology and things that people talk about the future that's just not going to happen in the way that people say. Why? Because the world is more complicated than people think. Here's another one. Google Glass. I bought Google Glass. Did anybody buy that? Don't bother, you get mugged at the airport if you try it. Okay, uh, would anyone like one of these for Christmas? This is a dog, you can buy a dog, it'll, it'll whistle, it'll, um, it'll uh, run around, it'll cost about $100,000, or you could buy a real dog, it doesn't matter. And you, so all kinds of things get imposed upon us, we read about them in the press, but they are nonsense forecasts about the future. Maybe they're going to happen one day, but it's not going to change the world like they say. Okay, here's another one. So you can stitch a chip inside someone's brain. You can do it today, and the chip connects automatically with your brain, so you can send an email by thinking alone. Now, I made up the last bit, okay? But not the rest. For a decade now, we've been putting chips inside people's brains. In fact, 400,000 human beings have chips inside their heads already, connected either to their brain tissue or connected to the nerves which enable them to hear. Some of them are so paralyzed that they, the only way that they can move anything or operate anything is by thinking alone. So they have a chip inside their head, the chip grows, 
into the surface of their brain and the brain grows into the surface of the chip. Here it is, here is the chip, here are the bits of the chip, here is the brain cell communicating with other brain cells and the chip. This is a bio-digital brain. Amazing. Put up your hands if you'd like a bio-digital brain. Oh, two. Put up your hands if you definitely do not want to queue up for a bio-digital brain. Ah, okay. So we're learning something about the future. The future is not just a list of technological innovations. The future is about human beings, my friends. It's about the choices that we make. It's about the passions that we have. And that's the biggest area where many companies are blind. Why is that? Because, well, I'll tell you why. It's because we discover that there's more to this future thing than we thought. It's all about something more than that. It's, what is it about? It is about, well, it's just about left and right brain. You see, you have a left brain, you have a right brain. Some of you heard me say this before. You see, I, I, I can always tell what audience I'm in. You know, if you have a bunch of lawyers and accountants, they're full of left brain. Okay, you show them graphs and tables, they get very excited. You show them, uh, let's say, a, a, a design for something, they get very bored. If you, show, if you have a group of marketing people in the audience or human resources people, they get incredibly excited about design, concepts, ideas, and incredibly bored when you show them graphs and tables. It's amazing. You see, we have left brains, we have right brains. Our left brain, all of us has a left brain and a right brain. I'm telling you as a doctor, you have a left brain, you have a right brain. Your left brain is the bit where you do your maths. It's the bit where you do logic, you add up, you analyze. It's where you decide things based on facts. The right brain will tell you, will, will tell you uh, what the mood is in the audience. The, the right brain will tell you whether someone's in love with you or not. <laughs> Left brain will get it wrong every time. <laughs> okay. Well, the fact is they sent a card. Yes, but she doesn't like you. <laughs> the right brain can work that out. So left brain, right brain is very important. We need both, actually. And the funny thing is that we can be blind in one area and have tremendous insight in the other. But what we need to read the future is both. You need the analytical, you need the data, but you also need to know that kind of intuitive hunch. You know, if you're interviewing someone for a job, always trust your right brain. The left brain says, the CV looks good, the bio looks great, they tick all the boxes. Yes but they'd be hell to work with. <laughs> Always trust the gut. <laughs> the right brain often sees things that the left brain can't understand. See, I just know this person's not right. I can't even explain why. See, yeah, but the CV is good. I know the CV is good, but and actually you're, that intuitive hunch which you have may be quite extraordinarily wise. So it's easy for us in our world where our educational system it demands that we analyze, we add up, we process, we compute, we do all of these clever things, and we can be really stupid. Why? Because actually, wisdom comes sometimes from the other part of our brain. It comes from something which is much more intuitive. Much more, the wisdom tells you that most people don't want chips implanted inside their brain, okay? It just tells you that. It's common sense. The left brain will tell you, oh, well, it's a good idea. We, could, we won't need mobile phones anymore. It's really important that we understand these things when we think about the future. So let's go in that basis to look at the future about our world. And the first thing that we need to know is this. Here's a fact. 
One billion children are alive today, more children than there ever been in human history, and there will never be one billion children alive on the face of the earth again. This single fact will shape the next 30 to 50 years uh, more than almost anything else. Where these children are is absolutely vital. 85% of all human beings alive in the world today live in the poorest parts of the world. They live in emerging markets, 85%. I don't know why we bother to sell anything to people in the UK anymore, no one lives here. 85% of the whole of humanity. What is more, 1% of the whole world owns half of the world's wealth. Uh, and you know, this is just part of an enormous story, so here's some more of it. Uh, for example, um, uh, one billion people are on the move. One billion human beings will move from one part of the world to another part of the world in the next 30 years. How do I know that? Because this, my friends, has been going on for the last 30 to 40 years. One billion human beings moving from a small town to a city, actually mainly moving from very remote rural areas, from mud huts in Uganda to Kampala, from Kampala to Nairobi, from Nairobi to another city, then across another border. And one billion people will continue to move for all kinds of complex reasons, but one of them is simply work, education, healthcare, and all kinds of other things that will change people's lives for the future. I'm having uh, now the richest 80 people own as much wealth as the poorest 3.4 billion human beings on the face of the earth. This is, my friends, it's the present, it is also the future. Because actually, those 80 people will probably own as much wealth as 4 billion people in the next 20 years. So this is the greatest moral and ethical challenge our world has ever known. 1,600 billionaires earn more wealth than the combined income of entire 120 nations. Are you there? Are you awake? This, my friends, is an extraordinary part of our future and it will shape us it causes people to move, it causes people to react, it causes instability in countries, it causes riots, it causes death, it causes destruction and ethnic chaos. These things are huge and at the same time, Europe is dying. We need eight great-grandparents to produce a single baby these days in Germany, in Italy, in uh, France, uh, no, not in France, they've started making babies again, now we're paying them all. But actually, in, uh, in many parts of the UK, this has been the case. In, uh, in, in Greece, it's the case. In Portugal, this is the case. In fact, there will be one million people over the age of 90 in Italy in just 10 years. Enough to change the results of every election. Does that matter? Yes, it might. Now, the result of all these human beings, we'll see 11 billion people on the face of the earth by 2065, putting enormous stress on our world. But here's the good news. We have more than enough food in the world today to feed 11 billion people. Did you know that? Why? Because we, we waste 40% of what we buy from Tesco. It goes straight down the drain. 40% of what goes into the warehouses never makes it to Tesco or Tesco throwaway. 40% uh, of what the farmers make gets eaten by the rats before it's even put in a bag. 
So we have an enormous opportunity to feed people in ways uh, that uh, we are not doing so properly at the moment. But there's one word which will drive the future more than anything else. What is the single word? This word is more important than technology or innovation. It's more important than politics or sustainability. What is the single word, this greatest driver of all of human history? This word, my friends, is simple. This word is emotion. It's the passions that we have. That's why you reacted so much to the chip. I showed you technology and you walked away. It's emotional reactions to events which create the future rather than the events themselves. The First World War was a human reaction to an assassination, a single bullet in a single brain caused a a First World War. It's reactions to Brexit that spooked the markets. It's not the event itself. It's a, you know, you hear the phrase market confidence. Market confidence pushes house prices up, pushes them down. Emotional reactions, my friends, drive history. So you want to look at the future, you need to understand what the emotional reactions are. And we're back to left and right brain again. Now, emotional reactions are linked to trust. Trust, actually, if you have no trust, you have no bank. (laughs) If you don't trust the bank, why would you put money there? If you don't trust the airline, you won't fly. If you don't trust any leaders of politics, you won't vote. Trust is really important. It's part of emotion and it's part of driving the future. So we're... You're trying to get the internet connection and you've got a few seconds. You type in Britney Spears' birth date for some particular reason. I don't know why you want to look her up, but never mind. (laughs) How many seconds will you wait for Britney Spears before you decide that life's too short? One second, two, three, four, five, and you're gone. So actually, we live in a world where you can lose 90% of your business in less than six seconds just because a web page takes a long time to load. It's really important. We're becoming incredibly impatient. Now, my wife and I, as a reaction to all this incredible tech, um, I can tell you a secret. Sometimes we like to go offline. Put up your hands if you enjoy going offline. (laughs) Put up your hands if you find it stressful and anxiety and it wrecks your entire life to go offline for more than three hours. Put up your hands, okay? So, actually, I'm in both, okay? It stresses me to go offline, but I just have to. (laughs) So we go offline and we'll go on holiday to a place like Scotland. Next, please. And you know, uh, often it's the wild and the wildest and the wildest and the simplest places we'll go next that really connects me with uh, just what life's really about. It helps me to realize life's too short to look at my emails every two seconds. Life's too short to be driven by the SMS or the WhatsApp messages every four and a half minutes. Life is too short. I need some time out. I need to stop. And it's part of a trend. People opting out, deciding we need space. Why? Space to be, space to connect with our future, because otherwise we're just driven by other people's activity, right? It's really important. And what do we do? Well, when we take time out, we are reminded of a different kind of future. We're reminded of past. I'm looking at waves, I'm looking at waves, I'm looking at scenery, I'm looking at rocks that's been here for 100,000 years. It does something to me inside. We can debate about you know, how many people will have chips inside their brains in the next three months, but I tell you, for me, to sit and look at the waves and the tide coming in to something extraordinary to my future. Put up your hands if you know what I'm talking about here. It's really important. Okay, next slide. Um, and you know what? Sometimes it can be electrifying to actually be on the water. I'm telling you, I'm a water, I'm a water, I'm a water lover. I love water. I love drinking it. I'm swimming in it. I love looking at it. Have you noticed how the house price for any property in the world that has a view of water is almost double what it is if you don't. 
There's something extraordinary, isn't there, about the power of water over the human spirit. It connects us somehow with something beyond just the next email. Uh, next slide. So, uh, okay, so, and sometimes you can get pretty wet. Next slide. So if you go on the water and it's pretty rough. Next slide. As my wife discovered, and she'll probably be joining us next slide in a few minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, so one night we decided to go on a long sail. Okay, next slide. And uh, it's, it's nighttime, and we hope the weather's not going to be too wet and too bumpy, but we're going offshore, a long way offshore. We're going to go away, away so far, you, even the lighthouses can't find us. So we're going to be 10, 15, 20, 30 miles away from any other human being. And we're going to be an empty ocean. I doubt if we'll see another boat all night. Okay, I don't know how long it'll take us to get where we're going. And one of us will sleep and one of us will be awake. Uh, next slide. So here we are. I'm awake and Sheila is asleep and I know at some point she will come up and tell me to go to bed and I will sleep. Next slide. And I'm quiet in that place and I'm just thinking, I'm in thinking mode about the future. I'm in my place to get inspiration and imagination about the future. So I go back and I'm going back in history a billion years. I don't know how many years. Why? Because I'm looking up at an amazing sky. I'm looking up next slide at so many slides and so many stars that there are so many stars, even though the moon is not out, I can more or less find my way around the deck and I can sail that entire boat without any assistance from a human light. And I'm thinking about the fact that instead of going at 12 miles an hour through the water with a wave, and all the waves are splashing against the hull and the wind is flapping, and the boat is keeling over, and I'm hanging on, I, I, I'm stacking around the deck. I, I, I have to be strapped on at night, because if I was to be bounced overboard, I would never be found again. So I'm, I'm, I'm there, strapped to the boat, and I'm staring up at the sky, trying to hold my balance. And I'm thinking of this amazing thing. I'm thinking, if I could travel at 670 million miles per hour, it would take me 10 billion years to get to the edge of space. Isn't that amazing? It's beyond my comprehension. I'm looking up at these stars and I'm seeing light that has traveled through the sky for a billion years before reaching my eye. I'm looking at life from there as it was, if I could get a big telescope out, a billion years ago. I'm not watching what's happening now because the light has taken so long to travel here. This is extraordinary. Next slide. I, even more extraordinary is that I understand that if I was to travel to Mars, my biological clock will slow down. Did you know that? My aging process, my watch, will start to slow down. Your watch will be going faster than mine. And when we do FaceTime together, it will spook you out. Because you'll see your second hand is spinning round and round and mine is almost stationary. Because I'm travelling fast. And as I travel fast, I'm approaching the speed of light. It takes me four light years to get to the nearest star beyond the sun. Next slide. And I'm looking at the Milky Way, this extraordinary arc of light in the sky. I'm seeing a hundred billion stars, a hundred billion pinpricks of light, each of them the size of the sun. And I realise I'm just looking at one galaxy and amongst there and beyond, I can see our 10,000, thousand, thousand, thousand more galaxies right before my eyes. I tell you, my friends, you want to see the future. Look at the past. Look at the future. You're seeing things beyond a chip and a brain now, my friends. This is more important 
than just whether Google produces a better web page or not. This is huge stuff. This is stuff which endures for generations after generations. Next slide. And I'm thinking of these things and then I get a most extraordinary thought. I suddenly realise that everything I've looked at in the whole universe actually could become pressed down. If I had enough pressure under my feet, I could press it down and down and down. And the whole of the mass, all the, all the granite and the stone and the dust and the carbon and the manganese and the zinc and the copper and all the stuff of the entire universe could be compressed down into the size of a single sun and then into the size of a single moon, into the size of a single football inside this room. And still I could make it smaller. If I had enough pressure, I could push all those electrons and atoms into something the size of next, size of something as small as this. Wow. I'm just telling you the laws of physics, I'm just telling you, they blow my mind every time I go sailing and I look up at the sky and I'm thinking, dear Lord in heaven, where on earth does that lot come from? And next slide. And you see, if we look inside the individual atoms of the universe, I'd, I'd take just one single atom inside your body. That's the smallest thing I can just about imagine. Actually, the atom, uh, you can think of as a ping-pong ball, but actually it's not. It's really an enormous football. Actually, it's an enormous thing. It's so big that if, if I, the core of the atom was just one foot thick, that thick, the electrons around the atom would stretch all the way from here or to the centre of London, <laughs> to, the, to, to the Houses of Parliament. Isn't that amazing? There's nothing between those electrons and the, and the, and the core of the of the atom. I know this sounds a bit complicated. It, just go with me here. It's just nothing. There's nothing in you. These atoms are just atomic particles with an electron going around and there's nothing in there. That's why we can compress all the electrons and all the atomic particles, all the molecules, all the mass of every person, every atom, every star, every galaxy. And if I had enough pressure, I could create it into a single pinhead. Extraordinary. Next slide. Um, and you know, this stuff creates radio waves. I can, if I had antennae, I could listen to it. Next slide. You know, actually, I can create a radio set. I did it as a child. I made a little, a little radio set like this. No battery. You don't need batteries. That's a last century idea. You don't need batteries to listen to the radio. You just need a little circuit like this. It cost me about 50 pence to build it, and uh, it will run forever. It will run for a thousand years as well. And I can listen to Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, fine, no battery needed. It's called a crystal radio. They were created in about 1901. But you can listen to the sounds of the universe through it. Amazing. So our brains, uh, there's all kinds of radio waves going through this room right now. If you had a radio set, you would be listening to Radio 1, Smooth Radio, Jazz FM, whatever. We are constantly being bombarded. With, with technology, with data, which you are absolutely blind to, and you cannot hear, you cannot see, you cannot feel. Your iPhone can get it, maybe, but you can't. It's radio, it's stuff like that. There's a whole dimension to life, next slide. And I think about these things and what is going on in our universe that we can't even comprehend. Whole dimensions of stuff. Next slide. And I was thinking about all this and thinking about how I could get in a, I'm, I'm on my boat now, on my boat now. <laughs> 
I'm thinking, I, I, wow, I could be up in a space station right now. In fact, you can watch, you can watch from the ocean. You can watch the space stations going across the sky, illuminated by the sun in the middle of the night. And I'm thinking, I could be a man or a woman, wherever it is. I could be someone in a space costume, outside, repairing a satellite. I wonder if I'd see the world in a different way. Next slide. So I'm thinking all this stuff. Lust in my dreamy world. And suddenly I hear this noise. Now I can tell you if you're sailing, noises can freak you out, okay? Every noise that is unusual, you want to know what it is. Does that mean the, the hull is filling up with water? Have we sprung a leak? Uh, is there a fire downstairs? Is, is the sail teared? I, I, I need to get my torch out of the sails, all right? I'm hearing noises. I think flat bang. And the wind is rowing, and the sails are banging away. There's, there's quite a lot of noise on the boat anyway. Flat bang. I'm thinking, that is, what is that? I'm thinking, is, is someone on my boat? Have I got a hijacker on board? I'm thinking, is a flying fish bound onto the deck? Is something breaking? Uh, what is going on? Actually, uh, my heart rate has gone up about 20 to 30. I, I'm actually worried about the boat. I'm unclipping myself, I'm trying to clip myself on again, I'm staggering around in the dark, I'm trying to find out, I'm trying to even work out where the noise is coming from one side of the boat, and it's coming from the other side of the boat, it's coming from the back of the boat, it seems to be coming from the front of the boat. Whoa, that's a big wave. <sighs> Next slide, suddenly, I realise I'm definitely not alone. Sheila's asleep downstairs. Next slide, I'm looking in the dark. Next. Next, he's gone. These dolphins follow us all over the ocean. Next slide. They love us to pieces. They are curious about human beings. They, they are fascinated about you, your world. I don't know what the dolphin language is for human, but they have a thousand words in their language. Did you know that? We are now trying to learn dolphin language so we can communicate with them. You only need 4,000 words to read the Sun newspaper. So they're pretty doing, they're pretty good, okay. <laughs> I often think, uh, what is the word in dolphin language for human? What do they think of human beings? What do they think of our world? Do they think we're angels? Do they think there's some kind of celestial beings that we have this extraordinary, unimaginable, supernatural powers, otherwise known as diesel engines? <laughs> what do they think of ships? What do they think of us when we flash at them or we wave or try to say hello? What theology do they have? What do they believe about God? Are they spiritually aware of these things? Where do they think their purpose is in life? Next slide. I often think about these things. What do they think of the stars? We now know that some dolphins navigate by the stars. They have a view. They come up to have a look and they are oh, North Star, thank you. Turn left. Amazing. Next slide. And yet every human being is also a mini-universe in itself. Next slide. You know, every, each member of our family, and we've got a, a big family, this is our family on holiday, each member of our family is, well, precisely 50% the same genetically as a, next slide, banana. You are the same, every single person here, I could take half of your genes, put them in a, a banana, and they would not know the difference. I could take half of your genes, half of the genes from a banana, and put them inside every cell of your body, and you won't be able to tell the difference, and nor will your doctor. Because you are 50% the same, my friend. What's your name? Ben. Ben, ben give him a round of applause. He's 50% the same as a banana. <laughs> What's your name? Thomas. Thomas. Next, next slide. 
You are 60% the same as tomato. Did you know that? Next slide. What's your name? Miriam is 65% the same as an earthworm. Genetically, it's true. Next slide. Any rat lovers? 67% the same you are genetically as a rat. Next slide. You are 90% the same as a cat that you have at home. Next slide. And you're 99.99999% the same as an orangutan monkey. Next slide. <clears throat> why do I tell this story? I'll tell you why. Because when we look inside your body, we see something as amazing as when I look into outer space. And next slide. You know, we have, it cost me only £1,000 now to read your genes, every one of your genes and to analyze why it is that you are who you are, and I will know everything about your genetic code. And all, all of you is programmed through your genes. The only person on the earth that will ever have the same genes as you is an identical twin. So this is an extraordinary thing that we're able to discern these things, we're learning these genes, and we're comparing the genes of millions of people now across the world and their medical records so we can make predictions about your future medical destiny. Next slide. We are, have the technology now to swap these genes. I can take a gene from your body and put it into yours. I can take a gene from your body and actually I can put it into a carrot. Actually, uh, some years ago, um, we took the genes from a human being and we popped them into a microbe that you found on the sole of foot, uh, in the soil. And we taught bacteria to make pure human insulin. And that's happened in 1993, by the way, quite a long time ago. So we are brewing human insulin just like brewing beer. I'm not going to ask who has diabetes here. One in 10 men in London have diabetes. Did you know that? Now, so this insulin thing is very important to many of you here. Many of you have, have diabetes already. Many, other, many of you in this room will have diabetes in the future. Insulin is very important. We are growing insulin just like brewing beer, just using bacteria which have been programmed with your genetic code. Why is this important? I'll tell you why. We have gained the command of the design of life. We now have the power to design life according to our own requests and image. It's an astonishing responsibility that society has hardly thought about. Next slide. Um, we, have, we are learning from animals which don't get old. Let me say that again. There are animals we are finding which do not have any evidence of getting old. Some of them are whales, some of them are fish. They seem to have the same kind of genes as turtles, which live for 100 years, or parrots, which live for 100 years, or perhaps human beings that live for 103 years. It's in the genes, my friends. And once we learn what these non-aging genes are, we can find ways to add these genetic characteristics to people who would like to live for a long time. Put up your hands if you'd like to live for 200 years. Ah, put up your hands if you're definitely sure you don't want to live for another 150 years. There we are, my friends. You see, the future is not about gene technology. It's about, what is this a word about? It's about emotion. Next slide. So we're looking at enormous complexity inside human cells. Next slide. Astonishing complexity. And actually, when we think about all the 100 trillion cells inside your body, did you know that there are 200 trillion bacteria inside your body? There are twice as many bacteria inside your body as there are human cells. Isn't that amazing? And most of them keep you well. You desperately need those bugs, okay? Keeps you well. 20 trillion molecules per cell. This is a universe inside a universe. Inside, we have 200 trillion atoms per cell. 200 trillion atoms inside a cell. Inside your body, inside every cell in your body is something as amazing as the whole universe. 
And every time I look at it as a doctor, I'm humbled and mystified by the extraordinary miracles of life. And we've just seen our fifth granddaughter, our fifth grandchild born just at the weekend. I wasn't there. But four times I've had the privilege of witnessing one of my own children being born. Put up your hands if you've witnessed that extraordinary event. And it is an extraordinary event. It's a mystery, isn't it? How half a cell from a man fuses with half a cell from a woman and how on earth that can program itself so perfectly to produce this enormous creature called a human baby. Absolutely astonishing. And some people have the cheek to think that human beings are nothing more than robotic, clever machines. Well, maybe, but I think you're blind. I think there's something more going on here. Next slide. Something quite profound going on when that cell for a man fuses with a cell from a woman. The two become, as the Bible says, one flesh and something extraordinary happens. Uh, uh, the Bible describes it as a spiritual event. It is something that has a physical dimension to it, but there's a bit more than that. There's something extraordinary here. Just like when I look at the stars and the galaxies, I don't just see molecules in space. I don't just see lumps of rock. I see something extraordinary there. Next slide. So here is the baby, this extraordinary creature, beginning a journey of life which began in the womb, and I'm not going to get into a great debate about how human things are from a little single cell right through to a little ball of an implanted something or other into a, an embryo, into a, an entirely 40-week-year-old uh, uh, um, baby. But this is something astonishing. It is uh, something to be admired, something that we, we become very emotional about. I tell you, you talk to people who are struggling to have a baby. This is emotional stuff. This really matters. Uh, next slide. Um, and life itself for me is an improbable and an extraordinary mystery and as much a mystery as the universe itself. Next slide. There is something astonishing here. And when I look at the beginning of life and then as a physician, I go back to my training. What was my training? My training was looking after people at the end of life. And there I find another astonishing mystery, something that is so astonishing and so emotionally um, connecting for us, I almost hesitate to talk about it, but it's the truth about the future of humankind. It's the truth about your future too. So will you forgive me if I go on this journey too? So next slide. So I've often discovered that it's only when someone is told that they're dying that they become fully alive. I have seen that a hundred, a thousand times. In fact, I saw it in my own father. I diagnosed my own father's brain tumour from that distance there. The moment I walked in through the door and I saw him walking towards me, I correctly diagnosed the brain tumour in the very centre of his brain. I drove him to hospital and he was there within an hour. He asked me on the way he was sick. I said, yes, very sick. And I was correct when I said, I, thought you, I, said, I think, Dad, you will be gone in seven or eight weeks. And he was. Seven weeks later, he was dead. Next slide. I'll tell you something extraordinary. The day after he died, we shaved him again because his beard was still growing. 
Oh. I'm telling you the truth. It's not like in the Hollywood movies. This is a mystery, my friends. See, if you're with someone who's dying, and I've often had that privilege, put your hands up if you've had the privilege of being there. We've been there, you've been there. And here is a woman bounded in space and time, and I'm sitting next to her on the bed and holding her hand as her doctor, and her sister's the other side, and all around her are all the wonderful things of her life, which speak to me of the person she has been. And there's no noise except the ticking of the clock and the gentle breathing. But I sense she's not far from her departure. And as we're sitting there, her breathing changes and becomes more rapid and more shallow. And, and I nod and the family can see and they're gathering around. More people have come. And we're there. And as she hears a voice that's familiar, she squeezes someone's hand. People thought she was unconscious, but I tell you, touch is the last sense to go and hearing is the last sense to go. I always assume they're there. So she's with us. She knows She's at peace. Actually, she has a face. She knows where she's going. She has an extraordinary sense of an adventure to begin. And her breathing is nearly gone. In fact, I'm taking her pulse. Her pulse is still there. Suddenly there's a breath. And then all is peaceful again. She's still here. I can't feel her pulse. After about 20 to 25 minutes, maybe half an hour, we just know she's gone. But here's the extraordinary thing. Her bone marrow is still producing red and white cells. Her hair is still growing. I can take her corneas out of her eye and she will be able to give child sight if we, um, actually, even at room temperature, she'll be fine until tomorrow. We can take the corneas out tomorrow. The corneas are fine. Her skin is still growing. Her, her gut is still digesting her food. Her heart is still going. It's not, just not doing it very efficiently. So her heart is contracting in a feeble manner and most of her brain is still alive but even though it would not recover properly to bring her back to consciousness she's on her journey she's gone my friends but tell me what is happening here because most of her is still alive can you see what I'm trying to say here there's something extraordinary and I often say that the nearest in my experience and any atheist gets to a spiritual experience is their own death and Death heightens spiritual awareness in every way because it confronts us with the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm more than a bag of biodata. I'm more than just a bunch of chemicals and atoms and molecules. There's something extraordinary here. I look up in the universe and I see all the planets and the stars and the dust. And I think, yeah, 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 planets and stars and dust. But there's something extraordinary here. Next line. So I think about that that process of journey, next slide. And I say very, very few people are atheists around the world. Most of them live in London, it seems. But <laughs> 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 a 
in the whole world, there are probably only around 135 million people who count themselves as atheists. There are 7.4 billion other people that would count themselves as believers. They believe that there is a spiritual dimension. They, they sense stuff. They, they walk into a room. They, they hear, they feel things. They can sense echoes from the past. It's their right brain kicking in. It's not stuff that the data of their left brain tells them. They just pick up stuff. They, they feel, they, they know that there's, there's another dimension. They have a radio station tuned in to other circuits, which perhaps atheists find difficult to receive. So most people in the world recognise that we are multidimensional, multisensory people, that there are other dimensions to creation, to existence, to life and death itself. There are mysteries here that we don't fully understand. Next, next slide. And I think about, therefore, this man out in space, and I wonder what he's seeing. Next slide. I think about the dolphins. I think about their spirituality. I think about ourselves like dolphins. Next slide. I think about what kind of inadequate minds we have. I mean, what did they teach them about mathematics in dolphin school? What did they teach them about astronomy in dolphin school? What did they teach them about physics and chemistry and mechanics and electricity in dolphin school? How, wouldn't it be stupid if a dolphin was said, I don't believe that electricity exists? Say, what? I don't believe, I don't believe there's such a thing as diesels. What? Because they didn't teach it to me in dolphin school. And I haven't got a dolphin word in my dolphin vocabulary, in my dolphin brain. It doesn't make dolphin sense to me. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Now, you're laughing at the dolphin, my friend. But you have just seen precisely the logical process that many human beings go through when they say, well, they didn't teach me that in human school. They didn't teach that me in Cambridge University. And actually, you can't prove it, so I won't believe it. And actually, what evidence is there anyway? Just like the dolphin said, you show me a diesel engine and I'll believe it. Yeah, but you hear the sound. That's not enough for me. I think it's powered by electricity. <laughs> I'm just saying, the, dolphin, the proud dolphin will get it always wrong, won't he? The proud dolphin, blind as a bat. The humble dolphin, very wise. The humble dolphin will say, well, I may not have learned about it in dolphin school, but maybe we don't see everything in dolphin school anyway. What about the times when I flip out out of the water? I see things no dolphin school can explain. I see mysteries. Yeah, well, I'm not believing what I don't understand. Well, my friend, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> because I think... There's all kinds of stuff up there in human land we'll never understand. But we'd be idiots to say it doesn't exist and idiots to say I won't believe it or accept any of it until I fully understand it. How will I ever fully understand human world when I'm a dolphin? Get a life. <laughs> and that, my friends, I believe is a secret for understanding some of these things and resolving these quandaries. Next slide. Because there's something else that happens here. I want you to imagine a human being has been sent by human beings down into dolphin world to learn dolphin language. Actually dressed like a dolphin, to look like a dolphin, speaks dolphin language, looks identical to a dolphin, and all the dolphins think is a real dolphin. In fact, they're wrong. He's been sent. Sent from another world altogether. Why? Because actually he's been sent to translate into dolphin language the kind of things that dolphins will never understand in their own world. Does that make sense? Actually, that is the story of the story the Bible tells us about Jesus. It's the story that Jesus tells about himself. Next slide. Which is, which is God coming in human terms to explain what God is like. Uh, imagine this person coming from dolphin land and the dolphins say, this guy's amazing. He tells us things about the life above. They really make sense now. 
I don't, there's lots of mystery, but at least I understand something. He tells us about this mystery and makes it clearer for us. He's giving us extraordinary wisdom. This dolphin from above has given us the greatest moral code we dolphins have ever heard. He brings us a philosophy of life which is instantly self-authenticatingly just right. And what's more, he's doing extraordinary things. He's demonstrating absolute power, astonishing power. You should see the miracles he's doing in dolphin land. Why? Because he's flirting around with an electric machine. He's got an electric razor. He's got stuff they don't understand. He can do dolphin medicine on them. I'm just saying this, if you like, is a picture for us of Jesus entering our world and why he had to come next life. Because in human terms, there's no way in which you could possibly understand Godland. <laughs> Jesus comes. He comes with a radical wisdom based on a command to love, which has cut across many other philosophies that came before and since, regarded perhaps as the greatest teacher that ever lived, certainly the most popular teacher and philosopher and leader the world has ever known. 2.5 billion people, 2.4 billion people would say that Jesus is the person that they follow. Next slide. Um, uh, the Bible talks, Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about um, being swept up into the fifth dimension, uh, swept up into a third heaven, seeing things he couldn't understand. He can't translate them into language. You can imagine him having a kind of dolphin type experience. He's flipped up out of the water and seen a glimpse of eternity, a glimpse of God himself, a glimpse of stuff that's so mind-blowingly beyond anything in human language, he struggles to explain where he's been or what he's seen. But he knows he's touched his future. His future, his destiny. Next slide. And Jesus, we know, is a fact of human history. There's more evidence of his existence than of Julius Caesar in Roman times because we have historical records, next slide, of him all over the place. Uh, and uh, we see him in the Roman calendars. We see him in the Jewish history books. Uh, next slide. We see the story of him uh, being an, uh, a, a, an amazing teacher. We see the stories of him being crucified, um, killed, dead, buried. We hear the stories in secular, humanistic, uh, historian language by people who are not Christians recording the stories that were spread rapidly around the world at that time that he had miraculously come back to life. Jesus, the great teacher, the Jesus who said things like, love your enemies. <laughs> love your enemies. If people persecute you, pray for them. If they hate you, love them some more. Love your neighbours yourself. Did you know that you can't teach leadership at any business school without using the teachings of Jesus? Did you know that? It's impossible. Uh, why? Uh, treat your customers like you'd like to be treated yourself. Uh, uh, by the way, don't try having a team of more than 12. Even Jesus couldn't manage it. And do remember that mentoring and coaching is very important. It's otherwise known as discipleship. <laughs> Investing in a few people because they are the key to your future. So Jesus had his 72, but he knew who his 12 were. He had 12, but he knew who the three were. He had three, but he knew the one was. And he spent more time with that particular individual than anyone else. Why is that? Because he knew how humans work. <laughs> Jesus said, he said, if you want to become a follower of mine, you have to lose yourself to find your true self. 
If you're not willing to be lost for my sake, you will never find your true self. He's telling you about your future. He's saying if you want to find your future, you have to lose your future. If you want to find your true self, you have to lay down yourself. He said, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your own cross every day and follow me. But if you care for your own safety, you're lost. This is radical stuff. Jesus said, you must be born again. We've talked about babies being born again. And they said, what do you mean, born again? He said, no, you must be born again. I mean, you've been born from a mum, but you've got to be born again. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's a fresh start. It's an end to the old. It's the beginning of something new, something extraordinary. Here's the extraordinary thing in human biological terms. Fertilization occurs. Baby emerges after 40 weeks, if, or 41, <laughs> in the case of my granddaughter. And then the journey continues until life termination happens, which we call death. That's the physical, yeah, that's the time-space world. You know, look it up. It's just bits of rock and bits of biological molecules. What Jesus was teaching was something very different. You think, actually, before the cells, the, the two cells came together, you were known by God. Whoa. What you mean before fertilization? That's creepy, man. Yes. 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 The Bible's very clear about this. Before you were even created, I knew you. What? <laughs> Remember. Don't be restricted by dolphin language, okay? You're stuck in your time-space world. Just let it wash over you just for a moment. Let your right brain just listen to this just for a moment. So what the Bible's saying is, there's a sense in which God knew you before you were even made. So that you have history before you even fertilized. Wow. But your real life didn't actually start until the point when you were born. Not physically born, that's just the physical stuff. You see, Here's my body. It's already getting old and achy. Eventually, it'll be worn out. It'll be gone. But my life won't be over. Because what Jesus is teaching us is that it begins in a way before we're born because God knew us before we were made. But actually, our events begins when we become born again, when we encounter God for ourselves, when we embrace, we turn on the radio set and we're starting, we tune into Radio 1. <laughs> We're actually getting broadband communication. Oh my word, I'm online. I've gone on. Oh, oh. oh my goodness. I'm looking up at the stars and I'm feeling that God's speaking to me. Why? Because, well, those messages are thundering around the universe all the time, but I wasn't tuned in. But when I became born again, it was like I was tuned in. I went online. I became spiritually connected. Oh my goodness. I'm seeing things. I'm seeing I'm seeing our world in a completely different frame. I'm understanding for the first time where I've come from, where I'm going, and what this incredible thing is about. Oh, and yes, now, okay, so now continue. My body's getting older and more and more decrepit and worn out, and eventually my heart stops. Bye. But I haven't stopped. I have just changed dimension. I'm no longer in Dolphinland. <laughs> I'm in a different universe altogether. A place which was impossible for me to even explain when I was a dolphin. And actually, if I was to visit back from, from where they've gone, gone to back to Dolphinland, no one would even believe me. <laughs> Things I've seen. Because I'm in a different universe, a, a different dimension, a different 
a kind of consciousness, a different kind of existence altogether. Extraordinary. So this teaching of Jesus is absolutely revolutionary. And what's more, he said, I'm going there first. As a human, having entered your dolphin world, as you were, I am showing you the way. And after he dies on the cross as a sacrificial act for all of us in ways that I'm not going to fully explain tonight, it's a mystery. But he, he said that he would come back to life, and he did. At least that's what his disciples claimed. Next slide. Uh, in fact, he did all kinds of other things in his life which were quite extraordinary, which are replicated all over the place. Just one of them uh, was he was constantly seeing things in people. So he was reading data from people, people leaking data to Jesus without them being aware of it or even giving permission for their minds to be read. He would walk into a situation, he would tell things about people that were quite astonishing. He told this woman, he said, uh, he said uh, go and fetch your husband. And she said, I have got a husband. He said, you're right. <laughs> You've been married loads of times, but you're not, the person you're living with, you're not even married to. Never mind. Just go and fetch them all anyway. <laughs> she rushes off in an absolute panic straight down to the village and says, come and see this man who's told me everything I ever did. And that day, huge numbers of people find faith. Do these things happen today? Yes, they do. Let me tell you a story. I, I, I remember teaching at a particular um, business school one day. And uh, it was an executive education programme. I had about uh, 20 people in the room, 25 people in the room. And uh, to illustrate this, I'll come down here. Okay, and uh, I was just, I was doing what I usually do. And I, you know, I said, just, I just, you know, I mean, just imagine, I mean, uh, you know, heaven forbid, but I mean, just imagine, you know, this person here has been diagnosed uh, yesterday with breast cancer and blah, 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 and I just carried on. Afterwards, the organisers came to me and said, uh, Patrick, I need to talk to you. Well, you know, um, you just randomly, you know, you were just in, the, in full flow doing a three-hour session and you just said, well, actually, what you didn't realise was she actually had been diagnosed with breast cancer 4pm yesterday. I said, oh, my goodness, I'm terribly sorry. She said, no, no, it's fine. She said, you know, don't worry about it. Anyway, it happened two more times that she didn't even tell me about. Eventually, she came to me after the fourth time, fourth session. She said, Patrick, would you mind? I don't know, I don't know what you're on. She said, but you're clearly reading things in the room. Um, I'm sure you don't, it's not, I, I said, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even aware I'm doing it. She said, well, you're clearly reading things. Would you mind changing the example? <laughs> so now, since that day, do you know what? I will never, ever, ever go to an individual uh, and, and do that. I always go to the empty chair. Because I don't trust myself anymore. Now, where does that come from? I don't know. It's the same stuff that Jesus had there. Actually, um, I know for a fact that there are a large number of people in this room. Put your hands up if you've had that experience. As a Christian, you've had that experience. You feel that God has revealed something to you about a particular situation or a person that actually was done for a purpose. It was to enable you to pray for that individual or to look after them in some way. Put your hands up. Have a look around. So these things are part of the normal day-to-day -day experience. When we suddenly go online, we become born again, we're connected in, the broadband's there. Stuff starts to happen for us in ways which are hard to understand. But it's a mystery. <laughs> if you're a dolphin, it doesn't make much sense, but it just is. Next slide. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't need a resurrection story to start a world religion, by the way. Muhammad didn't rise from the dead, did he? No. So, actually, it's the easiest thing in the world to start a world religion. 
in that sense, you don't need to be dead and then come back to life or have some kind of strange story like that. Next slide, but nevertheless, the disciples were crucified, hung up down and things like that because they refused to deny this ridiculous story. The Jewish authorities were perfectly happy to say Jesus was a fantastic teacher. Oh yes, fine. They were perfectly happy to admit that he'd done miracles. And they couldn't deny it. I mean, there's people who'd received sight. There were other people who'd been limping all their lives from, uh, from things like polio, had been uh, brought, brought back into normality. There were miracles happening almost every day. He was def- he was, Jesus was rewriting the laws of physics, chemistry, and mathematics, and, and uh, medicine all in one go. So he was famous for that. There was no point in denying that. He was a miracle worker. He was a fantastic teacher. Just don't say he rose from the dead. That's the real issue they had, because that would have meant that he was greater than Moses, greater than Joseph, greater than Abraham even. And that was such a terrible thing for them. They said, if you dare to go on with that, that is absolute blasphemy. It is absolute nonsense. Clearly made it up, and we will crucify you. We will do worse. We will cut off your heads. We will stone you to death. We will exterminate you. Are you listening to me? And the disciples said, What can I do? I've seen it with my own eyes. So do you realise what you're saying? And do you know what every one of Jesus' disciples was killed for their faith apart from John who was exiled for life? And many of the other generations of Christian men and women were crucified, they were stoned to death, they were sawn in two, they were, they were butchered, they were, they were absolutely abused from one end of their cities where they lived and the rural areas to another because of this single belief which they had, which is Jesus had broken the power of death, he'd come back to life and they could not accept any other explanation other than the one that they'd seen with their own eyes. Next slide. So an extraordinary thing happened here. And next slide. And many people inside this room and across this church and in, across this London, this great city of London, have stories of their own of transformation, of extraordinary revelation, of encounter, a power encounter of, with Jesus himself and with the power of God in their own lives in ways which they would find hard to explain to you and they would acknowledge there's all kinds of mysteries they don't understand. None of us understand fully because if we were able to understand, well, we'd probably be already past this life altogether. Next, next slide. So daily stories of the presence of God, prophetic insights, all kinds of things. And a common thing I hear people saying to me, business people, they say, Amazing journeys happened to me. I can't even fully put into words how profound this change has been in my life. It has changed absolutely everything. It's changed my marriage, my family, my kids. Actually, it's transformed my business too. All I'd say is this, why on earth didn't someone tell me before? <laughs> because I, it's kind of like I felt my life's been wasted up until this point. But when I found this discovery for myself, it's been so transforming that I just wish I'd known 10 years earlier. Next slide. And I often said, I said to you, didn't I, that people often only fully become alive when they know they're dying. And it's often a point of crisis for someone, 
could be a loss of job, a divorce, a, a tragedy in their own family. Something causes them to stop and take a deep breath and actually think about those bigger things. Next slide. And Jesus said, this was his challenge, he says, and the Bible says in John's Gospel, to those who believe, to those who go on the journey, to those who are prepared to allow themselves to go on the journey. He gave the right to become the children of God. Next slide. Next slide. Well, back to the left and right brain, and with this I finish. You see, <clears throat> I know that for some of you here, and this certainly has been the case for me at various times in my journey, what can happen is you can, kind of like third world war breaks out inside your head. So what happens is, it goes a bit like this. The left brain says, yeah, but, you know, you can't prove it. Or the left brain says, yes, but I don't understand this. Or left brain says, uh, but what about this? Or what about that? Or what about suffering? Or what about this? Or uh, the left brain raises all kinds of objections. And then the right brain says, yeah, but the thing is, I kind of know. <laughs> I kind of know there's something there. I kind of know that God exists. I, I know, I know it. I can't deny it. And the left brain says, yeah, but you can't base your life on things you can't prove. <laughs> and so you go round and round in this circle. And how do you resolve that? I think it's with an act of courage. Sometimes we can, uh, our left brain needs to be put in its place. <laughs> Say, actually, you know what? You can be a bit of a fool sometimes, left brain. <laughs> Since when have you been always right? <laughs> actually, sometimes it's my intuition that's right. And in my intuitive hunch, in, my, in the very depths of my being, I just know. I just know I'm more than a bag of biodata. I just know that. I know that there's some kind of author or mover or creator or something. I know there's another dimension of life. I'm more than a bag of bio, bio stuff. I know it. I walk into a church where people have prayed for, for 1,300 years. I feel something. Left brain says, yeah, just making it up. <laughs> and right brain says, don't be so sure. It's really important that we understand that faith, I would say this as a scientist, I've got a huge left brain, okay? Because <laughs> I love science. I have proof. But it's really important that however much you like an analytical approach, that you give yourself permission to discover. Next slide. So we started off by looking at life, life being short. And with this I want to conclude. So life is short, life ticks away. We do it with the things we really, really believe in. And I hope and pray for you that you will discover what it is for your own life to go on a journey to grab your own destiny and to find God's purpose for your own future.